Sego Tanze, and welcome to episode two of the Indigenous Land Rights and Reconciliation podcast, Changing the Paradigm. This episode features a discussion of different understandings of our relationships with the land, and particularly those traditional relationships which are challenging the Western and colonial interpretations of relationships to the land. The following papers will be presented. How will the land recognize you? Regenerating Indigenous Relationships Amidst Reconciliation Discourses, presented by Jeff Corntassel, University of Victoria. Land as a Matrix for Responsibilities of Reciprocity, presented by Burke Hendricks, University of Oregon. And Indigenous Peoples' Human Right to Land, presented by Cindy Holder, University of Victoria. Um, so my name is Jeff Corntassel. It's an honor to be here on uh, Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. And thank you, Janice, for welcoming us this morning and, and starting us off in such a good way. Um, and I think some of our discussion relates to land acknowledgments. And what do we, you know, how do we draw on those to orient our way in these territories, right? How do we draw on those, especially when we're not on our own territory? Uh, what is the implication of that, right? Uh, beyond acknowledgement, uh, what, is our, what is our obligation or what is our responsibility to this place um, as a Cherokee, right? As a Cherokee man coming onto this territory. So the title of my paper, which hasn't yet materialized, is How Will the Land Recognize You? And that comes from uh, a conversation with uh, Leroy Littlebear, who's a Blackfoot scholar, elder, and I'll draw on a little bit of Leroy's work uh, later on, but uh, one of the things that he said that stayed with me is, it's not so important whether you recognize the land, it's how does the land recognize you? And I thought that was such an important way of talking about land as having agency, right? The land is living, it's, it's part of who we are. It also has recognition, right? It recognizes who's part of this territory. It recognizes the language of these, of these territories, right? And so in that larger sense, we have to uh, go beyond that acknowledgement and understand that, that aspect of recognition. Uh, when I think about that, I come back to uh, a Cherokee notion of which means walking in a place with feeling. So to be in a place with feeling means you're in a place with reverence, with respect. Uh, you're walking in that place uh, carefully, and you're walking in a, in a place with that sense of responsibility. And so another aspect of that is when you talk about uh, Cherokee words for settler, um, you'd say the antithesis maybe of that is yoneg or yonega, which means the white foam on the water, right, that's shifting, and when it reaches land, it clings to it, right? So that's a much different view <laughs> than walking in a place with feeling. Uh, it's, it's finding ways through that, and I guess the challenge, too, is uh, for a while I was obsessed with different words for settler in indigenous languages, and you can think of all sorts of different words and what, how they relate to that particular context, that uh, you know, that particular colonial experience. Uh, experience is such a nice word, way of phrasing that invasion. Uh, and, you know, that idea of Yonega is specific to Cherokees, but you could think of, you know, the implications across other indigenous nations. Uh, but these terms 
in a sense, describe uh, historical experience, <clears throat> but they also describe an ongoing uh, experience. And so to what degree can Yonega be overcome or transcended? And I guess that's part of this notion of reconciliation is to what degree uh, can you overcome that mentality of clinging to land, right? And it's a challenge, right, to, uh, to that, that settler mentality. Uh, another thing that uh, I was thinking about as we're you know, preparing for this talk is what's happening in Wet'suwet'en. And I know some folks mentioned that earlier. And I visited the Unistaten uh, encampment in uh, uh, not that long ago, a couple of years ago. And one of the things that struck me is the protocols. So uh, when you get to the, the river, you basically see these signs that say, stop, uh, honk, and wait, right? And so there's this long bridge, and so you honk and wait, and you could be waiting for quite some time. Uh, and then someone will, from the, uh, you know, Wet'suwet'en or, or someone else from the camp will come across the bridge and ask you three questions. And it's really the third question that I found the most interesting as a way to challenge us in terms of thinking about the land and our role in it. Uh, first question is, what's your name? You know, do you work for government or industry? And then the third question was, uh, how will your time here benefit the land and the community? And that's a pretty challenging question, uh, especially as someone who's not from Wet'suwet'en. Um, how will my time here benefit the land and the community? And I extend that out to Haudenosaunee territory. I extend that out to other territories that I'm not from. Uh, how will my time there actually benefit uh, the land and the community? I don't have a, any great answers to, to give you offhand, but uh, certainly uh, has given me a lot of thought about the way that I engage. Um, so I'm going to give you, um, this will be a fairly quick run, but I'm going to give you some uh, I think four, I guess, pathologies or intellectual and policy-driven cul-de-sacs of reconciliation. And then I want to give you some examples of ways, uh, possible ways through that, uh, using the Bison Treaty <coughs> and uh, also talking about Wet'suwet'en and, um, and also uh, the Cherokee Seed Bank. So when you start thinking about... Um, you know, these relationships that we hold so dear, these, uh, these forms of relational accountability, as, as um, others have talked about it, uh, we start to think about the ways that, and Dale mentioned this earlier, the ways that we embody these relationships in our everyday practice. And so lately I've been taking a look at what this everydayness means for indigenous peoples. And this everydayness really is, you know, it's the way that we engage meaningfully in these intimate encounters and these, these uh, intimate aspects of our lives that are often unseen and unacknowledged, right? These are the ways that we, uh, we engage with and, and learn about these relationships um, that, are, that are often hidden from view, and yet they're key to how we engage with the land. They're key to how we respond uh, to those questions of how will the land recognize you? Uh, how will your time here benefit the land and the community, right? And so uh, I guess part of this is how much do we share? <clears throat> to get to an earlier question that Abigail asked, you know, how much do we share and how much do we engage with? And I'll give you an example through a story. Let me give you uh, just a really rough overview of the story, just in the interest of time and, um, 
it also uh, um, just so you know I can give you cut to the chase a bit. But uh, there's a story in Cherokee about how medicine came to the people. And the story really talks about how Cherokees forgot about their obligations to the deer, to the deer nation, right? So they were actually, they were taking deer uh, without basically offering tobacco, without offering those prayers. And in doing that, the deer nation basically held a council and they began discussing, you know, how, what's the source of this disrespect? Why have Cherokee people forgotten to honor um, this relationship? And so as they engaged in this council, they said, we need to punish them. We need to remind them that this is not without consequence. And so the deer said, we'll give them rheumatoid arthritis, we'll give them other diseases, and this will, this will help them remember. And so Cherokees were, were, you know, a lot of Cherokees were sick at that time, and they were suffering. And they didn't understand why they were suffering. They hadn't yet realized what they had done to, uh, in a sense, uh, obscure this, this important and valuable relationship. And so the plant nations held their own council, and they said, well, let's help these people. Let's help remind them uh, that we can not only get them better, we can provide some healing, uh, but in order to, to get these medicines that they have to show their honor, they have to show that respect. And so the plant nations came to their rescue, in a sense, and offered themselves uh, in order to heal Cherokee people. And I say this story because it's got a lot of different elements to it. If I told you the longer version, you'd get even more from it. But uh, in the sense that it's about consent, so there are issues of consent in this story. Uh, there's issues of responsibility. What does that responsibility look like uh, in an everyday way? Um, and there's ultimately issues of, you could say that if we use the word reconciliation to mean uh, anticipating a shared future together, there's an issue uh, or a, a, an element of reconciliation in this, in this particular uh, story. And it's about making this relationship right again. Right, um, <clears throat> and I think like a lot of stories, these these um, these principles allow us a way out. Right, it's never that the Cherokees are doomed, right, to destruction. It's that we have ways out, and in this sense, the visions for our relationships to the land, to other people, are embodied in our stories. They're embodied in our treaties as well. They're embodied in our ceremonial life. Uh, they're embodied in all these different ways that are often hidden from view um, and sometimes are revealed in public ways. And so in that sense, I always come back to these stories and come back to these, uh, these teachings. There's a great piece by uh, Cree uh, scholar Gina Starblanket and Anishinaabe scholar Heidi Stark on relationality. And uh, I wanted to highlight that. That's in a book called Resurgence and Reconciliation uh, by John Burroughs and Jim Tully and Michael Ash. And um, basically, what, one of the things, one of the main points that uh, Starblanket and, and Stark talk about is that it's not enough when we talk about resurgence. And I, I do a lot of work on uh, centered or focused on indigenous resurgence. And resurgence is premised in some ways on a turning away from the state, right? It's turning away from uh, other state entities and towards 
uh, our communities, right, towards our, our focal point on the land, right, and in, or, in order to rejuvenate some of those relationships or regenerate or to continue them or to renew them. You can think of them in many different, many different ways and maybe too many R words in the process. Uh, but one of the things that, that Starblank and Stark talk about is that it's not enough just to expose people or reconnect them to the land or to other people, right? It goes much deeper than that. It goes much deeper in terms of those embedded relationships and those, those, uh, those aspects of life that we nurture and that we honor in an everyday way. So simply saying we're going to reconnect, simply saying we're going to, uh, to get people back on the land is not enough for a full discussion of that relational accountability, uh, for a full discussion of what that attachment means uh, for indigenous peoples. And it also gets us away from a universalizing ethic, right, of saying, you know, reconnection or resurgence is somehow this universal principle that all indigenous peoples experience in a, in a very similar or, in some cases, same way. Uh, <clears throat> realizing that this is going really quickly, how are we doing on time? Oh, yikes. Um, all right. I'm going to give you the five, uh, <clears throat> the five uh, intellectual and, and policy-driven cul-de-sacs of reconciliation, and then I'll, I'll end with a, an example. I think one of the, the ways that you know, this will almost be a, like a top ten list, ways that you know reconciliation has gone off the rails, uh, is uh, one of the danger, danger zones is reconciliation is certainty. That is, especially certainty on the, the part of the province or the state in order to secure uh, economic benefit or some sort of economic investment. Um, the other is uh, reconciliation as a return to some sort of mythical previous um, condition or, or past. Right? This notion that everything was okay at this point and we're re simply returning to that suggests that that relationship was in place and, and, and very strong. Um, the other danger that I see is a his, uh, reconciliation as a historical reboot. That is, you know, taking that notion of forgiving and forgetting uh, almost literally. That is, we're turning the page, we're, we're changing, we're putting that aside. That notion of history as being set up in discrete linear terms that we can simply uh, turn off or turn on uh, depending on our, on our needs. Uh, reconciliation as conciliation, at times seeing it as a way to, uh, to create this notion of harmony even though the central issue, i.e. land, hasn't been addressed. Uh, so this, this notion of a, in a sense, a quicker fix. And then finally, reconciliation is risk management. That is when uh, policymakers use it to simply uh, avoid any you know, uh, any more protracted conflicts or find other ways to channel uh, the conversation, maybe into the courts, maybe into other, uh, other uh, particular forums. And there's an interesting, uh, so if you want to look at, um, I drew on a little bit on uh, the late Art Manuel, Chequetmec uh, leader who's written a really good book on the Reconciliation Manifesto, uh, but he talks about reconciliation framework agreements and how those are you know, used as both risk management and creating certainty in order to promote um, investment. Uh, with those in mind, uh, in 2014, there was something called the Bison Treaty. I don't know if you, how many of you have heard of the Bison Treaty or the Buffalo Treaty. 
something that was negotiated with Blackfeet uh, peoples and along the U.S.-Canadian uh, border. And the design was to uh, basically protect bison as uh, the key part of their community. And so this has since led to uh, the reintroduction of bison in, uh, in their territory. And I think what's notable about that, and I'll spare you the details, but uh, at the very onset of the treaty in 2014, there were eight signatories. And Leroy Little Bear happened to be one of the main architects behind this treaty. Uh, now there are over 20, right? So the idea is that this is a living treaty, and this is a treaty uh, between other indigenous nations and four other indigenous nations, as well as four policymakers. So it's kind of four indigenous nations first and foremost, and other policymakers, other provincial parties can sign on as well, but they have to go through this process. Right? And the idea is that this treaty is also renewed on an annual basis uh, in ceremony. And so the idea uh, behind this really ties into, I think, uh, what I'm trying to get across in terms of uh, a deeper understanding of, of how we regard the land and how we you know, uh, view our relationships and ultimately our responsibilities uh, to the land and to those, those particular beings that are, that are part of that, um, uh, part of that, I guess, spectrum. Uh, so I'll conclude here. Um, at the end of the day, it's the stories that shape us. And so the, the story that I told you about how medicine came to the people, that shapes who we are. And that story is allowed to evolve and take on its own life. And in that sense, uh, how will the land recognize you uh, becomes an ongoing question based in story, based in the language, uh, based in our experiences, based in how we feel as we walk on, on this place, on, on this land. Um, and I, I came across, um, interestingly, I think there's new ways of engaging with this. And a colleague of mine, uh, Vince Diaz, who's um, doing some really interesting work on virtual aspects of land. And so he's basically started talking about virtual reality and how we can, how, you know, what if you can't actually be there to experience your own territory? Uh, but also, what if your territory is increasingly going underwater, right, or is, is being hidden by encroachment by colonial powers? And so he's, he's talked about using virtual reality and using these different techniques in order to experience the land in different ways. I throw this out there uh, just because that's, that's, um, those are areas that we're going to confront as we talk about these new relationships uh, but also the, these responsibilities that we have to the land. So what, what is our responsibility to a digitized form of land? And one of the things that Vince suggested is that we could actually hold uh, basket-making um, um, uh, workshops virtually. And so you can imagine someone from someone at Queens could be tapping in, as well as someone from the Pacific, someone from other areas tapping into this uh, this particular skill and learning the skill in a virtual way. Um, and so Haltzik First Nation actually has a really nice digital kind of entry into their land. And if you want to take a look at that, um, I invite you to do that. But uh, so at the end of the day, though, it doesn't obscure those responsibilities and those relational accountabilities. So, Wado, thanks.
Thank you for having me here today. Um, the paper I want to talk about today is a conceptual paper. And I want to start with a somewhat unusual caveat, which is that I'm not sure anything I'm going to say is correct. Um, and I, I do mean that seriously. Um, I'm not sure that anything I'm going to say is correct. But it's something that nonetheless seems worth pursuing. Um, what I want to talk about today is ways of conceptualizing what it means to have a connection to a territory. Um, I want to see, seek to reconstruct what seems to me a theme in the work of many indigenous scholars, in which land is invoked as, primarily as a matrix on which uh, relationships take place. This view of land of, uh, as a matrix of relationships suggests, I'll argue, a different view of what is required politically to reflect indigenous relationships in political form than the hard boundaries, contiguous models that are often put forward in the literature on territorial rights and by states as well. So the paper and my talk today proceeds in uh, several sections. It, uh, basically, I'll do three things today. Um, first, I want to set out the view of territoriality against which I want to respond. Uh, then I want to consider three indigenous writers' views on responsibility to place and show a certain set of themes that run through them. I'll then try to sum up the results of this inquiry with a, a sort of brief overview of how it might help us think about territoriality in a different way. So to begin, uh, I want to raise worries about a model of indigenous territoriality that entails hard, contiguous boundaries and fixedness to particular locations. In the literature on territorial rights in political theory, political philosophy, indigenous peoples, but also in, in politics, indigenous peoples are often framed as small countries, captured into relationships with larger countries. Indigenous political actors themselves have worked very hard to articulate this model. In the United States, for example, Cherokee political theorists in the 1820s and 1830s sought to extend concepts drawn from the European law of nations to their own political claims. In 1832, the United States Supreme Court accepted this basic Cherokee portrait in the case of Worcester v. Georgia, at least elements of it. Um, quoting the, the United States Supreme Court, the words treaty and nation are words in our own language, selected in our diplomatic and legislative proceedings by ourselves, having each a definite and well-understood meaning. We have applied them to Indians as we have applied them to the other nations of the earth. They are applied to all in the same sense. End quote. The basic territorial scope of Cherokee Nation as a political entity was set by the transactions found in earlier treaties and formed a kind of territoriality familiar from the law of nature, uh, law of nations, excuse me. Quoting the court again, the Cherokee Nation then is a distinct community occupying its own territory with boundaries accurately described in which the laws of the state of Georgia, against whom the case was brought, can have no force and which the citizens of Georgia have no right to enter, but with the assent of the Cherokees themselves, or in conformity with treaties and with the acts of Congress. Now, unsurprisingly, most indigenous peoples in the United States have worked very hard to try to push American law back toward the Wooster model of nation-to-nation, -nation, or one might say country-to-country -country relationships. In doing so, they've worked very hard to counter portrayals of indigenous peoples as naturally nomadic, who are loosely attached to the land and therefore can be removed without causing a great deal of suffering. And this is um, what the, uh, the, uh, the opponents of the Cherokees were actually arguing at the time, um, the Jacksonians and others. Indigenous writers have often showed, moreover, sought to show, moreover, not only that indigenous peoples are strongly attached to particular territorial spaces, but they are more attached to them than other peoples. And I have in mind here um, especially the work of Vine Deloria, who carried out a very long project to try to show the intensity of indigenous attachments to territory relative to those of other peoples. Now, within Canadian law, indigenous claimants can't plausibly assert claims to sovereignty, again, within, within Canadian law. Um, but the tests of Aboriginal title within Canadian law continue to insist on 
and presume that indigenous peoples have strongly anchored claims to particular territorial spaces. Um, these are property claims rather than country to country claims, but they have a very similar form of fixedness and hard boundaries. I won't say much about that here um, because I assume that most people in the audience actually have a fairly good sense of this. Um, Despite the reiterated character of arguments about the fixedness of Aboriginal sentiment attachments to territory, however, um, about the nature of attachments to territory, to land, there are other elements within many recent indigenous descriptions of territoriality that suggest a somewhat different portrait than this drawn from the law of nations. And what follows, I'm inevitably going to overstate some of the descriptions being offered, and, and I warn you about that. Um, it seems to me to take the, the risk worth doing this, to sort of set out a particular um, conceptual framework, but uh, I'm going to be overstating things inevitably, I think. So um, to turn to the indigenous scholars themselves who I'm drawing on, I want to start with Glenn Coulthard's recent work. Um, I want to begin with a work which gives central role to the land itself, but at the same time, suggesting intellectual resources for seeing the ways in which land may serve as a matrix or substrate for other kinds of relationships. Coulthard has argued for what he describes as, quote, grounded normativity. Coulthard argues that, quote, it is a profound misunderstanding to think of land or place as simply some material object of profound importance, though it is that too. Instead, it ought to be understood as a field of relationship of things to each other, end quote. The relationships involved entail myriad kinds of beings that are found in particular spaces, quoting uh, Coulthard again. In the Welladaw dialect of Dogrib, which is his community's language, for example, land or de is translated in relational terms as that which encompasses not only the land, understood here as material, this is my emphasis, but this is in, in his original text, the, not only the land understood here as material, but also people and animals, rocks and trees, lakes and rivers, and so on. Seen in this light, we are as much a part of the land as any other element, end quote. Coulthard argues that this implies a distinctive ethical stance that is associated with this membership in the land. Uh, quoting Coulthard again, ethically, this means that humans hold certain obligations to the land, animals, plants, and lakes in much way the, the same way we hold obligations to other people. And if these obligations are met, then the land, animals, plants, and lakes would reciprocate and meet their obligations to humans, thus ensuring the survival and well-being of all over time. End quote. Non-oppressive relations, and this is, is uh, Coulthard's term, require this kind of careful attention to the full range of human duties to place and to those inhabiting it so that all have the opportunities for mutual flourishing. Now, while Coulthard, Coulthard does hold that land has intrinsic value of its own, the separate role here attributed to it as material is suggestive. If humans are, quote, as much a part of the land as any other element, as, quote, rocks and animals and trees, lakes and rivers and so on, then it seems to follow that land, understood here as material, in Coulthard's own phrasing, has a fundamental role as a substrate or matrix on which other kinds of relationships occur. If humans are, quote, as much a part of the land as any other element, there's a kind of asymmetric relationship between land and all those things that take place on it. This suggests a kind of potential separability between the relationships between beings that take place on a particular portion of material earth and the relations that these beings have with the underlying substrate itself. Insofar as relationships to land exist, they seem in Coulthard's work relatively abstract. Relationships with other beings that exist on land's matrix, however, seem to entail a great deal of geographical specificity and temporal specificity as well. Animals, plants, lakes, and so on uh, can only receive engagement in specific places. Other beings, especially animals, move, but so does water. 
And this seems to make a great deal of difference. And I want to have more to say about this going forward. So I want to turn now to the work of Leanne Simpson. And part of what I'm interested in doing here is showing a certain continued theme that carries throughout these authors. And again, I'm likely overstating those continuities, but I think they're helpful for unpacking. Apologies for that. Um, so I want to move now to some elements uh, found within Leanne Simpson's book, As We Have Always Done. I'll suggest that Simpson's work articulates what might be referred to as non-contiguous responsibilities to place, which require that indigenous peoples fulfill responsibilities in locations to which they lack consistent access or legal title that is recognized by uh, Canada or the United States. In engaging Coulthard's discussion of grounded normativity, Simpson focuses on complex patterns of independence that cannot generally be captured by simplistic models. Quoting Simpson, I don't know if the Nishinabeg approach, I don't know the Nishinabeg approach so much as an ethical framework, but as a series of complex interconnected cycling processes that make up a non-linear, overlapping, emergent and responsive network of relationships of deep reciprocity, intimate and global interconnections and interdependence that spiral across time and space. I know it as the algorithm of the Nishinabeg world. End quote. Although Simpson doesn't make a distinction between land as such, and the beings that enter relationships of reciprocity on its matrix, such a view seems at least implicit within much of what she describes. Given the centrality attributed to cycling processes and non-linear emergent relationships, it seems that most of the fastest flows and the most complex interrelationships will be between animals and ecosystems. For this kinds of relationship, land, again, would seem to matter primarily as a matrix on which these events occur. Like Coulthard, Simpson generally rejects industrialism and resource extraction as unavoidably harmful. Quoting Simpson, our knowledge systems, the education system, the economic system, the political system of the Michisagag Nishnabeg were designed to promote more life. Our, ways of living, our way of living was designed to generate life, not just human life, but the life of all living things. End quote. Simpson argues that indigenous knowledge practices are deeply embedded in patterns of indigenous life so that the information necessary to determine what would create more life was generated in going about daily practices in the right way. Simpson argues that many actions that gather knowledge and ensure reciprocity continue today, even on territories that are not currently recognized as indigenous in U.S. or Canadian law. Quoting Simpson, I hunt anyway, we hunt anyway, all in the small patches of crown land, with permission on private land, without permission on private land, and in the places where our people have always hunted just like we do ceremony in campgrounds, in interpretive centers, in church basements, in the places our people have always done ceremony. Just like we pick medicine in ditches, in farmers' fields, and in tiny forests, where our people have always picked medicines." End quote. Now, this seems to me most easily explicated on a matrix view of territoriality and relationships. Insofar as land is a matrix in which relationships take place, it's possible to maintain these relationships even on lands to which one has sporadic access even when they're potentially non-contiguous from one another, even when they're often damaged in quite profound ways. The basic goal is to maintain the relationships and their associated knowledge practices at whatever nodes of interbeing contact make this necessary or available. Quoting Simpson again, my people are out on the land, even if we are criminalized, even if we ask, have to ask settlers for false permission, even though the land is not pristine, even though, even though. This is in part because within Nishinabeg thought, the opposite of dispossession is not possession. It is deep reciprocal consensual attachment. We relate to land through connection, generative, affirmative, complex, overlapping, and nonlinear relationships. So what I'm trying to develop here is a particular view of land which allows for envisioning non-contiguity, for allowing us to conceptualize land in, in a more sort of broad way than this country-to-country -country hard boundary model 
makes visible. A lot of this paper is drawn from my attempt to um, unpack some of the work of the third person I'm going to talk about, who is um, Kyle Powys White. Um, and Kyle and I spend a lot of time writing and reading one another's work. And so the paper has really emerged from, in some ways, me trying to think about themes in Kyle's, White, Kyle's work relative to other people. Um, Kyle is a philosopher in an academic philosophy department, but he also works with U.S. land management agencies, including the Forest Service um, and the Bureau of Land Management, on issues of adaptation to climate change. So White is particularly concerned with the ways in which indigenous territories may move over time. For White, indigenous, territory ha indigenous territoriality has, at least for many communities, long been loosely connected to specific land spaces themselves. Quoting White, the broad issue of adaptation to environmental change is not new for many indigenous peoples. At least in the case of the indigenous peoples with whom I collaborate, of which I am a member, Potawatomi, they see their societies as having had to adapt constantly to shifting environmental conditions since time immemorial. Indigenous families, clans, and political institutions had to be sensitive to seasonal variations and fluctuations and had to follow and adjust to alterations in the patterns of animal and plant population movement." End quote. For White, this basic flexibility marks fundamental aspects of indigenous social and knowledge collection practices. So quoting White again, scholars are increasingly claiming that indigenous people's cultural and political systems are based on moral norms, cosmologies, and family, social, and political structures that are intentionally designed to facilitate adaptation to environmental change, end quote. Because nodes of connection are potentially mobile, then indigenous connections to territory may also be mobile in certain cases. White notes, for example, that existing political boundaries may often cause connections to be severed if species move in substantial ways. Quoting White again, indigenous peoples then find themselves in situations where they must adapt to climate change that does not respect boundaries, where they do not have the sovereign status of international community to assert cross-boundary jurisdiction. Consider cases where a culturally significant species moves off a reservation whether that is located within U.S. borders um, or into, an, excuse me, moves off a reservation that is located within U.S. borders to an area that is within Canada, end quote. While this may at first seem to be a problem straightforwardly caused by the stiffness of the U.S.-Canada border in particular, um, on further consideration, it seems to be a broader problem is involved here with this idea of fixed boundaries that are anchored to unquestionable geographical spaces. The problem is not this specific border as such, but the fixed nature of any cartographically marked space that animals and other beings may move across. Animals and water flow, especially animals move in surprising directions. This is a problem around for any sort of fixed reservation boundaries, even if they may have been created by treaties. So quoting White again, the radical repairs needed would mean that entire political relations frameworks, such as treaties and reservations, would have to be rendered flexible enough for supporting indigenous adaptation, Treaties, for example, would have to include mechanisms for indigenous peoples to change the terms of harvesting rights, to be able to track habitat changes. Additional jurisdictional capacities would have to be developed in addition to ones such as reservation boundaries, end quote. Yet, as White notes, settler states instead insist on a stiff model of indigenous territoriality in which boundaries are determined once and for all um, and, and are after then essentially immobile, or, although there's often an inward filter such that it's easier for settler states um, to, to encroach on indigenous territories even once they've been recognized. 
Quoting White again, one consequence of this territorial stiffness, um, that phrases my insertion, but uh, in some cases is that indigenous peoples cannot practically plan to shift their seasonal subsistence and economic activities if a valuable plant or animal's habitat moves outside of a treaty area or crosses a transnational border because settler states would oppose such plans as quote-unquote illegal, end quote. So the basic portrait that emerges from White's work is, I hope, clear Indigenous peoples have knowledge systems that operate through and on relationships with animals and other beings. They involve ceremony, they involve other ways of gathering knowledge about the movement of waters, flows of animals, and so on. These systems require the capacity to access specific nodes of relationships to continue functioning. States that prevent indigenous peoples from pursuing nodes of connection as they shift are, are thus preventing indigenous peoples not only from pursuing things that they value as intrinsically valuable to particular cultures, but also from pursuing relationships that are essential to interdependence and information gathering about changing ecological flows. Indigenous territoriality on this vision is, so to speak, not fixed in place at all times. It may instead involve patterns of movement, and the network of connections of importance to indigenous practice and people may potentially come unmoored from the landscape on which they currently exist. Insofar as states block adaptation of this kind, especially as we move from the Holocene into the Anthropocene, they block indigenous peoples from continuing their connections with other species and thereby meeting their responsibilities. Okay, I, I want to just in this, the last little bit to wrap up um, this kind of conceptual portrait of territoriality that I'm sketching. And again, I wouldn't want to suggest that this holds for all indigenous peoples. This is a theme that one sees in the work of particular authors. Um, it may be a primarily Anishinaabeg, um, Dene sort of model. Um, I also in the paper talk a little bit about John Burroughs, uh, who has shares some similar pieces of this focus on moving beyond stiff um, immobile boundaries. Um, Presuming that the general intellectual arc described here is defensible, and again, it may not be, um, and, and I hope you can help me judge that. What portrait emerges of indigenous territoriality? The key idea here is that land itself, land as geographical space, land as materiality, is not the basic thing that matters in many instances, but instead the flows and nodes that take place within land or on land as a kind of matrix. We might, if it helps, imagine a map with multiple overlays that trace patterns of interactions between the full range of existing beings who are engaged in reciprocity. There could be a human map, an animal map tracking particular flows, a map of the connections between different water spaces. On this map, the human overlay will likely be relatively cognizable and clear at particular time periods when we look at it. Um, but the overlay will often look different throughout the course of the year. And it will certainly look different over longer time scales as humans interact with species who are moving, given perhaps local climate changes, but also given the much more consequential climate changes that we have reason to anticipate um, will beset us over the next few decades. So if we have a kind of model of different overlays of relationships, we may be able to see a little bit more strongly the challenges that are necessary for thinking about what reconciliation actually looks like, for thinking about what it means to pursue justice in the future. The density of nodes within this overlay at the human layer and the possible migration of these nodes' movement in relation to other species, other beings, will tell us a lot about the degree to which indigenous territorial connections will collide with or slide past 
the territorial connections of non-indigenous peoples. Now, it seems possible that, in fact, they might slide past one another. I don't think that's the case. I think that quite often, indigenous nodes of relationship and connection will require um, collisions with the territorial claims now made by those who are non-Indigenous. And, and I think if that's the case, then it means that those of us who are non-Indigenous have to take really seriously the difficulty of asking Indigenous peoples to give up those kinds of connections in the name of um, reconciliation. So even if something like the portrait outlined here is correct, of course, it doesn't follow that it's a good idea for political theorists, Indigenous or otherwise, to lobby for revised legal doctrine um, to lobby for revised terminologies for use in most public debates, um, for lo lobbying for revisions to the way that American Indian trust lands are conceptualized in the United States, because states are likely to abuse any opportunities to weaken indigenous territoriality in this way. So this is not a potential theory that can be turned immediately into legal doctrine or maybe even into the, a tool for public discourse in non-dangerous ways. Um, even if the claims made in this paper are correct about the attachments to territoriality by many indigenous peoples, um, this, may be an indigenous uh, this, this may be a theoretical tool which for the moment is valuable at the margins um, around trying to conceptualize new territorial spaces in the, in the midst of land claims and so on. Um, Given White's concerns about the future movement of species under conditions of climate change, however, I think this tool may become much more necessary than we have reason to wish. It, it um, seems likely that animal and other animals and other beings will begin to move and that those of us who want to think about what reconciliation requires will have to take a much less stiff, um, much more flexible conception of what is necessary to achieve that. So, thank you. All right, so I get to say, I'm so grateful to be here and to be part of this conversation. It's, um, I hope that I can add something, but, uh, you know, I've already taken a lot, so, so thank you to everybody. Um, I'm going to argue that uh, human rights is a good framework to be used for thinking about Indigenous people's claims to land. Um, I know that that is a hard sell for some of you, <laughs> and that's okay. Um, uh, and for others of you, it's not going to be a hard sell. It's going to be like a, eh, yeah, whatever. Um, I, I hope that by the end of what I've, of my, my, my paper, uh, both camps will have found something interesting in, in what I'm going to talk about. Um, because part of what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus on the features of human rights as a framework that I think are actually valuable. Um, indivisibility, uh, collective subjectivity, standing, and universality. Yes, universality, yes, that's, yeah. Um, so one thing that I'm not going to do um, is suggest that human rights is the only or m perhaps even the best framework for uh, advocating for uh, claims to land. Um, I think it's actually unlikely that there would be a single theory <laughs> that accounts for, I think, the, the search for a grand unified normative explanation of what justifies an indigenous people's claims to land is not actually, it's implausible to think you could find that because the relationships to land are so different. Motivations of states for refusing to accept claims to land are so different um, that it would be unlikely that you would find a single normative justification. But what I think the human rights offers, and in particular the features that I'm going to emphasize, is an ability to actually make it okay for there to be this diversity of grounds on which claims have to be accepted. Um, and I think one of the other things that it does is it do, there are a lot of resources in human rights 
as a framework for shifting the onus in discussions about claims and for shifting the onus onto those who would reject them as opposed to um, the onus being on those who are advocating for them. Um, so one concept that you see across deployments of a human rights framework is this idea of dignity. Now, the idea in dignity is that all human beings, simply because they're human beings, have dignity. And in virtue of that dignity, there's a minimum level of respect that's due. That minimum level of respect imposes obligations and constraints whenever a human being is involved. That's the universality commitment. So the wrong in a human rights violation is failure to discharge the obligations or accept the constraints that apply given the subject's humanness. So what happens in a human rights violation, it's not so much a denial of the humanity of the subject as it is a failure to accept that that humanity is enough to impose constraints, right, or to compel a response, right? The, the violation, in a, the wrong in a human rights violation is carving out an exception that allows that obligations and constraints that would usually reply, can apply would be, can be disregarded in this case. Now, the classic formulation of such carving out is in Locke, right? Um, you, when you look at Locke's theory of slavery, it's not that the enslaved, it's not that the rightfully enslaved are not human. That's not what justifies or enables enslavement. The enslaver is given license to enslave because the enslaved gives them reason to disregard their humanness, right? So it's not a denial of humanity. It's, a, it's an assertion that there are conditions under which it's okay to ignore humanity, right? And I think when you think about the way that argument works in Locke, right, um, the human rights response to that argument is there are no conditions under which you get to deny that humanness matters, right? There's no circumstances under which that becomes permissible. And to go looking for exemptions or absolutions Right? to go looking for arguments that release slavers and colonizers and beneficiaries of institutionally created starvation from the basic constraints that respect for dignity imposes is morally obscene. Right? So arguments for exceptions and limitations to human rights obligations are not about establishing what people are rightfully empowered to insist on. Those kinds of arguments are about establishing when and for whom which, that which people can rightfully insist on can be ignored. So to adopt a human rights framework is to adopt a framework within which there are no conditions under which something that a person has a standing to rightfully insist upon can be ignored. And that's the indivisibility commitment. Right? So now the indivisibility commitment suggests that what human rights are about is not establishing the minimum conditions that states have to observe to be allowed to go about their business. Human rights are about establishing conditions that are necessary for people to go about their lives. So as an explanation of the content and function of international human rights law, it might make sense to characterize human rights as articulation of minimum constraints on states. But it's a mistake to confuse human rights law with human rights as a framework. Right? As a framework within which to identify and press the wrongness of failing to accept or even recognize the possibility of certain claims as rightful, human rights has to be about actual concrete people and the wrongness of failing to respond. Okay. So now, the limits of the kind of um, Bites, Macklem, international human rights law way of thinking about human rights as a framework, you can think about that by thinking about the limits and challenges that indigenous peoples especially, but really all non-state groups, 
confront when they try to use human rights law to contest state power. Right? With international, like international rights law, international human rights law is, is statist. Right? States are encompassing entities. That is a presupposition of international law. And what that means is that states appear in the place of, and they are the vehicle and the agent responsible for a pop, the population that resides within its borders. So this means that as institutions of law, human rights, international human rights institutions, they're committed to taking state actors' characterizations of their policy motivations, their domestic legal order, their mandate from the population as a whole, their responsibilities with respect to that population at face value. And that is just a fundamental challenge in using international human rights law as a vehicle right, for addressing. Um, but you don't have to think about human rights in that way. Instead of thinking of human rights as a framework as a framework that articulates the constraints on states, you can instead think of it in terms of activities, aspects of life, ways of being in the world that people have standing to insist upon. In this way of thinking about human rights, they assert standing with respect to that which is claimed. They protect people's capacities to go about the business of living by insisting that people be afforded standing with respect to the political, legal, economic, and social conditions out of which their lives are made. And that, that the focus here is on the concrete, actual human beings and the lives they're living, doesn't mean, then, that human rights are paradigmatically individualistic. Quite the contrary, because people don't live their lives individualistically. People live their lives in groups, right? We're like bees, we're gregarious animals, right? So if you conceive of concrete human beings not just as concrete individual human beings, but concrete human beings in community, then it is possible to think of the subject that human rights protects as a group subject and not just as an individuated one. Right? Now, there are explanations of how you can have group rights that are individuated, right? So Alan Buchanan's, Peter Jones, they talk about group human rights and the human rights of peoples in terms that make the, the ultimate subject is still an individuated human being, right? But they claim those rights or they exercise those rights, right? Or something about what grounds the right has to be done in concert with other people. Those kinds of conceptions are still highly individualistic and they're not going to get you the kind of group human right that would be useful and valuable, right? But there are other more relational ways of conceiving of how the actual concrete people that human rights protect are social. Right? And that way of thinking about the actual concrete people is to commit to collective subjectivity. There are different ways of thinking about collective subjectivity. One is to think of it in terms of plural subjectivity, right? that when people are connected in certain ways, another subject alongside all of the constituent subjects is created. That subject is all of the people connected and their relationships to their connections. And those connections and relationships to those connections can go forward into time and can go backwards into time. And so then the, that plural subject has a logic of its own. It has a way of being in the world of its own. It's constituted out of the subjects that constitute it. But that doesn't mean it can be reduced to those subjects. Right? And the people who constitute it, it is as much a part of their subject, of their being as they're moving around in the world as an individuated being. 
So that kind of collective subjectivity is something that international human rights law certainly recognizes and has no problem recognizing it. Um, and it's actually something that's enhanced by one feature of human rights that isn't emphasized enough, I think, and that's the indivisibility of human rights. Right? Um, the indivisibility of human rights is a commitment to the idea that um, what you see in an it, when I say freedom of movement, when I say right to property, right, when I say right to health, I'm actually describing a single phenomenon that's just manifesting in different faces. Right? It's the idea of a unity of a human life. And that you may describe that aspect of life using one term rather than another. What you're doing is you're highlighting parts of the experience as opposed to others. And now the indivisibility, the idea behind indivisibility is that human rights are um, you get it right exactly. Um, indivisible, interdependent, and interrelated, and must be treated on the same footing and with the same emphasis. That's the classic formulation of it. It explicitly rules out prioritization of some aspects of life over others, it prescribes trade-offs within a person or of one person against another. It rules out then, for example, moving people off land for the sake of their health putting people in the position of having to choose between staying in place and accessing education, in circumstances where people has to be displaced because of physical security concerns or housing concerns, there has to be a plan for how that displacement is going to be addressed and how, if at all possible, people are going to be moved back onto the land. Commitment to indivisibility creates pressure for consultation because of this, right? Because if, the, if, the, if what it is that human rights protect if the framework is not one in which you can separate out the different aspects of a person's life. There's really no way to develop a policy or to deploy a policy without actually consulting with the actual concrete people whose human rights are at stake. The other part of human rights that is important here is the idea of standing. Now, sometimes when rights are talked about and the language of rights is used, rights are equated with entitlements. But the more persuasive descriptions of what's, like, nor, rights language is a distinctive normative language. I, in other contexts, I've talked about it. I think of rights as a really good trick. You know, in evolutionary theory, there's this idea of a really good trick. It's like an otter using a rock, right? Or a crow using a stick, right? That idea that it's this thing that once a, once a creature discovers it, it is so well-suited to do so many things that they want to do that you find it everywhere. It becomes ubiquitous, right? And I think rights language is that kind of thing. It's a really good trick. If you think of it that way, then it's a mistake to think that there's features of it like atomism or features of it like abstraction are intrinsic to it. I do think that one of the things that makes it a good trick is actually not so much the idea of entitlement, but the idea of claiming and standing to assert a claim. That idea of standing is the idea that you are owed an answer and that the answer is owed to you. That's one of the things that entitlement doesn't give. I can have an entitlement without you having to answer to me for whether or not you've discharged, you've met that entitlement. But if I have standing, and it's standing, that's the core, the normative core, you owe an answer to me, and I can assert that. So this idea of assertion on a basis of standing is really key. And that idea of assertion on the basis of the standing is part of how it is that the universality element of human rights can be useful, right? Because part of the idea is, is that to deny a claim 
is actually, in many instances, to deny standing to demand things at all, right? That right to have rights is not so much a right to have entitlements, right? It's a right to be recognized as having the standing that you, in fact, do. So one of the things that I think is, I'm going to come back to indivisibility for a moment. I think one way to think about how it is that human rights as a framework relates is to think of it in terms of, like, human rights as a framework for addressing, like, land with respect to which people, a people has human rights, right? If you think of human rights as a set of mutually limiting sources of obligation and constraint that taken as a whole establish what may be asserted as a claim on the basis of human rights, right? Respect for a particular right, like the right to culture or the right to equality before the law, right? As I've said, it's going to be one face of a larger phenomenon. And so that means then that failures to respect human rights are going to have multiple dimensions. They're going to impact those subject to them in multiple ways. You can describe what's being violated in different ways. And how you describe it is going to depend on what you emphasize. Are you emphasizing the mechanics of the behavior? Are you emphasizing the experience of those who actually have been targeted? Are you emphasizing who the violator is? Are you emphasizing the motivation of the violator? Right? The thing is, depending on what you emphasize, what the wrong is is going to shift. Now, these wrongs can all be simultaneously present, and they may be equally explicative of why what's happening is incompatible with human rights. Now, some of those wrongs, though, may be more apt bases for legal action. Some of those wrongs may be more rhetorically effective with a specific audience. Some of those wrongs may be easier to support with empirical evidence, right? But that some faces of a human rights violation are emphasized for legal, rhetorical, or strategic reasons doesn't make those descriptions of the wrong more fundamental or more essential to understanding what's rights violating about actions or events. And I think this point is especially important and can be especially valuable in addressing how a, special, a people's special relationship to land grounds their claims. Right? So indigenous people's claims with respect to land are sometimes treated as though they're grounded primarily, if not entirely, in the land's cultural significance. Right? But claims with respect to land are not simply a species of cultural rights. There are assertions that a people is due specific powers, protections, supports, or performances in relation to specific territory or a place. The justification of that claim may be that the cultural significance of the place is such that to deny their claims with respect to land is tantamount to denying them the ability to practice their culture. But the justification may have nothing to do with culture. Right? The justification may be that state actors have no right to stop them. Right? State actors may have no right with respect to the territory or may have no right with respect to the resource. Now, domestic constitutional orders often presuppose that state officials have prior and preeminent rights to dispose of and determine what happens within territory, and that rights with respect to land of everyone under the state's jurisdiction flow from and are conditional on that prior right. There are well-established reasons for rejecting that presupposition. Accepting the empirical fact of states as the political units within which populations work out their relationships with one another and live together within territories does not entail that states have prior or preeminent rights with respect to territory. Right. So even when culture is part of the justification of a people's claim with respect to land, there's reason to be cautious about reading those claims exclusively through the lens of culture. Right? Um, arguments for territorial claims that emphasize the cultural significance of land risk instrumentalizing land by casting it as significant, 
casting it as an object of cultural consumption, right? It also risks exoticizing and psychologizing claims, right? By casting both the grounding and the subject asserting the claim as alien and psychologically distinct. Right? When you rely on the distinctiveness of a people's worldview or the particularity of members' self-understandings, it makes those subjects' worldview and their inner life the focus, when that is not what the focus is supposed to be. What the focus is is what's being done. Right? That kind of focus, too, can position claims with respect to land as special, as less material, right? as more symbolic than other claims. And this makes them more easily qualified or curtailed. Some of these dangers are evident in Canadian jurisprudence, where the emphasis on culture and the justification of Aboriginal rights has made such rights more difficult to establish and less constraining than civil rights set out in the Charter. So one of the benefits of a human rights framework is that you ground claims in the whole human, right? You recognize the whole human. That means that the fact that a people has a special connection ter to territory may be part of what explains why they have human rights claims with respect to that territory. But the special connection may not in itself be what makes the claim justified as a matter of human right. right? For example, where land plays a central role in medicinal practices and the maintenance of health, indigenous claims with respect to land may be grounded in the human right to health. And this is one of the things that's happened in the inter-American system. Right? Within the inter-American system, actually, cultural rights is not, are not actually a direct go-to that you can have. One of the distinctive features of the inter-American system, as opposed to the United Nations system, is there's no minority rights provisions. One of the other features of the inter-American system is that because the human rights provision that empowers the inter-American commission to review uh, compliance with human rights obligations is in the OAS charter, Everyone who's a signatory to the OAS Charter, including Canada and the United States, is subject to evaluation and complaints based on their human rights performance, whether or not they've um, signed the treaty. And so in the inter-American system, the indivisibility of human rights and the universality of human rights are used as levers, right? They're used as ways to actually mainstream indigenous people's rights and claims with respect to territory. And so, the most typical grounds on which claims to territory are vindicated as matters of human right in the inter-American system is on grounds of property, on grounds of equality before the law, grounds of access to a fair trial, grounds of health, and grounds of the state's obligation to preserve everybody's human rights. And it's a mistake, I think, to think of these as workarounds because there's no cultural provision in the inter-American system directly, right? Um, because when you actually look at the behavior, right, in many instances, the petitions that come before the American, the various uh, bodies in the American system are petitions regarding um, decisions that have been made with respect to territory or actions that have been taken within a territory. And when you look at the history, there's usually a long sorted history of failures to observe written procedures, a long sorted history of failures to protect people's basic physical security, right? And those failures are not, like, to say then that what you're looking at in a refusal to actually acknowledge the claims of the people to the territory that they're living in is a violation of the right to equality before law. That's not a workaround. That's calling it like it is, right? 
But the universality, this is I'm going to leave you on, the universality of human rights is actually quite crucial to that because one of the things that universality does is that universality forces a step back from the particular domestic constitutional arrangements, the particular domestic understanding of what's permissible with respect to indigenous peoples, right? The universality actually is the lever, the wedge through which you say, if domestic constitutional arrangements permit this, what is the problem with domestic constitutional arrangements? As long as you stay inside the framework of domestic constitutional arrangements, it's difficult to actually get purchase and it's difficult to reframe the conversation. Um, universality is a way of doing that, right? It's a way of levering it. And the last thing I'll leave you on is, one of the things to remember is the, one of the primary motivations for um, the Harper government rejecting the UN DRIP was precisely the observation that many of the things that it outlined as required as a matter of human rights were incompatible with Canadian practice and Canadian legal doctrine. Okay. Miigwech, Ekosi, and thank you for listening to Episode 2, Changing the Paradigm. Episode 3 presents Part 1 of a two-part discussion entitled Interacting with the State, which emphasizes different legal regimes which guide contemporary relationships between Indigenous peoples and the state. The Indigenous Land Rights and Reconciliation Project is funded by the Government of Canada's Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council and Forskningsgradet, the Research Council of Norway. We would also like to thank the Department of Political Studies and the Centre for the Study of Democracy and Diversity at Queen's University and Globalizing Minority Rights at UIT, the Arctic University of Norway, for their sponsorship and organizational support. Special thank you to CFRC Kingston for their assistance in coordinating this podcast and to traditional artist Patty Kusterock. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences.